0: Well, good morning, and I'll repeat for you real quickly what Cameron already announced, but just to invite you to join us on Christmas Eve, come and join us on Wednesday at 4 o'clock right here in the theater, and we'll gather for our Christmas Eve service, and it'll last about an hour or so, and a little reception afterwards, so you'll have plenty of time that evening to go and join your family for all that you have planned, if you do. And uh, I'll also make one other announcement that Cameron didn't make. Um, which he didn't know I was going to make because it's about him and For the Nations Refugee Outreach. So uh, For the Nations Refugee Outreach this past week had their Christmas store, which many of you know about, many of you contributed and helped out with that. And a very kind and generous donor friend of For the Nations told Cameron there that this particular donor would match up to $50,000 in year-end giving for whatever For the Nations raised between last Saturday and the end of the year, which is only a week and a half away. And so we want to help with that in whatever way we can to help them to double the money, so to speak. Uh, it'll be a great help to their ministry and to the people of that community. And so our deacons have agreed to designate next week's December alms offering to For the Nations. And that. Alms offering will subsequently then be doubled uh, in its effect for that ministry. So just to, to tell you and let you be aware of that for next Sunday, come and, and if you are able and prepared to do that, to give to alms that will go for that purpose. This morning we're in Isaiah once again. If you've been with us and visiting with us or, or not, we've uh, been in, in Isaiah, the early parts of this prophecy For the Advent season, Isaiah gives us a good picture of the Gospel in advance. Isaiah um, was writing in a day of great darkness and gloom, but he is, of course, a prophet. And that means that not only does he bring warnings and darkness and gloom, but he brings a very bright hope of the Gospel. And that's what Isaiah gives to us. And I would ask, too, if you have a Bible with you, and I know that the Scripture is in your bulletin, And that's convenient for you, but you heard read to you moments ago from Matthew chapter 4. You might want to put a finger in Matthew 4 so that you can look there now and then. I'll refer to it as well because it's a a fascinating parallel to Isaiah 9. This is what Isaiah gives us, beginning in verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time, And His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over His kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God stand forever. Father, I pray that you would be with us. Would you give us your spirit? Would you give us ears to hear even the words that I don't say? Would you speak to us by your spirit and help us, Lord, to see and to believe your good news in Jesus here in this word from Isaiah? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> So, do you know what today is? Today is a day that maybe you're not aware of. It's not just a few days before Christmas. Today is a profoundly important day, and it is every year. Today is the darkest day of the year. Do you know that? Today is December 21st, which means that it is what's called the winter solstice. Now, for the astronomically challenged among you, What that means is that the sun rose later this morning and the sun will set earlier this evening than on any other day of the year. However sunny or not it is today, today is the day of the year on which there is less light, therefore more darkness than on any day of the year. It's a fascinating thing and it's fascinating that Christmas always comes just four days later. Now, we don't really know when Jesus was born. We don't know exactly what day, even precisely which year. They didn't keep hospital records of such things back in his day. And so I'm not exactly sure why or who placed December 25 to be Christmas. But it's a very suitable day for us to celebrate the incarnation of the Lord. At least it is in the northern hemisphere. And now for our friends uh, in the southern hemisphere... It's a little bit different. But in the northern hemisphere, it's very appropriate because Christmas comes four days after the day of darkness. It comes when the light literally begins to push back the darkness. And, and that's what Christmas is. Christmas is the pushing back of the darkness by the light, by the birth of Christ. Because with that birth, a light has dawned. A light has dawned on the horizon of world history even though the darkness is so prevalent. You know, in Isaiah's day, it was very prevalent. In our day, it's prevalent as well. I mean, racial strife and terrorist attacks and threats of more, even over silly things like movies. Wrongful convictions based on prejudice and fear and domestic violence and abortion and theft and greed. The list goes on and on and on. It's it's a long list. And effort is not required to see it. Poverty is not required to feel it. Disadvantage is not required to inflict it on others. And the gospel has no intent to hide it either. Scripture certainly doesn't. The darkness is prevalent even through scripture. But scripture tells us that a light has dawned. And that's what Isaiah tells us here. Isaiah was a prophet in the dark days of the divided kingdom of Israel and Judah. We've, we've looked at some of the history of that the past couple of weeks. It had been 250 years or so since the glories of King David and King Solomon and the United Kingdom, a powerful kingdom in its day and in its place, of Israel. Those days had faded centuries before, and other kings now rule In this nothing of a kingdom, in this nowhere of a land called Israel and Judah, it's even divided on itself. And Isaiah brings a word to say that even in this darkness, even in this darkness, God is still at work to redeem. And 700 years later or so, a Jewish tax collector named Matthew would write about how that redemption was unfolding in his world. Seven centuries later, Matthew would write about this. You heard it in Matthew 4, moments ago, which I think if you put the two together, you begin to see how they are, I think, an intentionally paralleled account of Isaiah 9 into Matthew 4. In Matthew 4, you read about how Matthew tells us that John the Baptist's arrest triggered something in Jesus before his ministry had begun. John the Baptist's arrest triggered Jesus to withdraw. And where did he go? He went to Galilee, to the territory, Matthew tells us, of Zebulun and Naphtali. This is where Jesus went. In order, Matthew says, Matthew, the Jewish prophet who connects the Old Testament to the life of Christ to show us that it's all one story... Matthew tells us that he withdrew into Galilee, to Zebulun, to Naphtali in order to fulfill what the prophet had said. And then Matthew quotes from Isaiah 9. And Matthew works the words a bit for his own interpretation to show us more fully what Isaiah was speaking of. And then after he quotes from Matthew, 9, Matthew or from Isaiah 9, Matthew continues and says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A light has dawned, and all who see it will recognize that it is shining on unexpected places. Okay, Isaiah begins his words of chapter 9 with with this. In the former time, God brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land of Beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, Zebulun and Naphtali. Okay, so this is a little bit of a challenge for your biblical geography as you think of your Old Testament and what you know of what happened ages ago. Joshua, of course, led the people into the Promised Land after Moses had died, and they begin to settle in the Promised Land, and each tribe settles in its own place, some further south, like Judah and Benjamin, some further north, like Zebulun and Naphtali. They were of the northernmost tribes settling in the, the Promised Land. And, and these two settled in a land between the Sea of Galilee, which really wasn't a sea, it's a small, kind of or a large lake, I guess. It's, an, it's not a sea, but it's called the Sea of Galilee, you know of that, on the east, and on the west, the Mediterranean Sea. And so this is the land... The way of the sea. And this is where Zebulun and Naphtali existed. Now, in the days of Ahaz, King Ahaz, which is when Isaiah was prophesying, as I've told you these last couple of weeks, Ahaz was an unfaithful king, king of Judah. And God was bringing his judgment on not only the northern tribes of Israel, who were always unfaithful, to God, but also the southern kingdom of Judah, which now under Ahaz's poor leadership was now unfaithful to the Lord, and God was bringing Assyria to come and bring judgment on all of them together. Assyria would come from the far east and they would come sweeping over the north and down south, straight through Zebulun and Naphtali. These are the places that would go into the darkness and the suffering first. And 700 years later, 700 years later, they would be the ones to first see the light of dawn. Fascinating, isn't it? Matthew says, to fulfill the words of the prophet, Jesus withdrew into Galilee, to Zebulun and Naphtali, and he began to preach, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew even tells us, if you heard this detail, that Jesus, as a result of this work, became famous where? in Syria. Now, if you remember, Syria in Isaiah's world was that ally of the evil now kingdom of Israel attacking Judah. Syria was the nasty neighbor from 700 years ago. And now Jesus, the Redeemer, the Son of God himself, is becoming famous in Syria of all places. The gospel is even more glorious, you know, When it shines on unexpected places. And it's in these places where Jesus begins. He still does the same today. You know, where do you expect for the light to shine? In 21st century America. You know, we expect for blessings to to flow in Lake Highlands and in Lakewood. We expect for blessings to abound in the Park Cities and in Richardson, the places where there are good schools and nice homes and Lucrative jobs to be had, I presume. But if Isaiah were speaking today, he he wouldn't say the light has dawned in Lake Highlands, I don't think. He would probably say something like, the light has dawned on the Willow Pond Departments. The light has dawned on Vickery Meadows, where all the poor and the refugees have settled. The light has dawned on the refugee community, where for the nation's ministers. This is where the light has dawned, it's in such places that God begins His work, because when the light shines, it shines brightest in the unexpected places, even the unexpected places of your own life. Nate Larkin, you may have heard of, some of you, Nate Larkin started a men's ministry called the Samson Society. He was a preacher's son, married straight out of college headed straight for seminary, went into ministry and became a pastor at the age of 25 and on a ministry trip with other uh, ministers to New York City. He was taken on a tour of Times Square and, and then some of the darker places of Manhattan where they were exposed to the realities of the sex industry and all of the addictions that are spawned from this dark part of the world. And Something awoke in Nate Larkin, an addiction, which which grabbed a hold of him. He was fascinated by what he hadn't really seen before. And for the next five years, he descended into the depths and darkness of addiction to a world that will grab a hold and not let go of you. And he loved it and he hated it. For five years, he served as a pastor and as a hopelessly addicted fool until his wife discovered him. And on the day that his wife discovered him, he looks back on that and he says, he thought that was the day that his ministry ended. But now 20 years later, he looks back and he says, that was actually the day that my ministry began. He established this ministry to men and to reach out to them and to to help them to understand how to cultivate biblical community among men and and to encourage them in their hearts to let go of the empty idols that they've grabbed a hold of. He never would have imagined that the light would have shined in this darkest place of his own life and not simply cast him out, but rather made use of him because of it. Matthew adds some depth to what Isaiah says in verse 2. Isaiah says, Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Matthew says it a little bit differently, if you notice. He says, For those dwelling in the shadow of death, light has shined. Matthew surely is alluding to the 23rd Psalm. For those who walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God walks with you. The Lord is there, shining even in the the darkest places of your life and the spots where you walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You know those spots. And yet the light of the gospel has dawned and will shine even on those places that you may not expect. That light is sh- shining as well, breaking in unlikely ways. Isaiah makes allusion to the fact that, that that light will break the yoke and the staff and the rod of oppression. Those those metaphors, those figurative pictures of oppression that God's people have been under. And and this breaking light will break those oppressive elements. But the breaking of those things is completely likely. You know, you do expect that. That's not the breaking that I mean. It's rather the way that the light breaks upon them is completely unlikely. They will be broken by a light that breaks as on the day of Midian. Okay, again, Isaiah is always going to test your understanding of the Old Testament and your your recollection of those childhood memories of Sunday school and the stories that you heard. What is the day of Midian? What did God do on the day of Midian, do you know? You have to go back to the book of Judges to see it in Judges chapter 7. There, the people of Israel are before the kings have come. David is not yet. And they're under the rule of certain judges that God raises up to lead them. God is their king. But he's brought discipline upon the people as they've rebelled against him. And so God has brought the Midianites, some nasty neighbors, to conquer the people at different times and to draw their attention back to the Lord. And God raises up a man named Gideon to deliver the people from Midian. And how does he do it? Gideon has an army of thirty or 40,000 warriors, and you'd think that that could maybe do the trick. But God says, no, that's too many. Gideon, that's too many. 30, 40,000, that's more than I want. Because if you go and conquer Midian with thirty or 40,000 people, then you Israelites are simply going to say, look how strong we are. Look what we did to free ourselves from the shackles of oppression. That's not what I have in mind, Gideon. So tell your people, tell your men that everyone who's afraid can go home. Half of them went home. There were 20,000 left. And God said, that's still too many, Gideon. So here's what you do. Take them down to the river. Tell them to take a drink of water and see the way they drink. And the ones who drink in a certain way, you can send them home. Almost all of them drank that way. And you remember how many were left, don't you? 300? And God said, that'll do it. Take them, Gideon. Go and conquer the Midianites with these 300. And Gideon's surely imagining... I don't know how you're going to do this, God. There are countless, countless warriors against us, and we got 300. And the Lord does it. He, he conquers these people with trumpets and jars of clay. It's not the way that we would do it. But this is the way that the light is breaking upon us. And the thing that's to be done, as Isaiah has given it here with this light breaking, this, the thing that's to be done by this breaking light is is huge. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Okay, so in in old times when the battlefield was finished and the warriors, you know, one side was victorious the other side was dead. And they would clean up the battlefield by piling up the the boots and the the bloody garments and burning them to, to finish things off. It was a sign to say that the the battle is complete. It's over. There's no more fighting. It's all ended. Now, there's much fighting in this world. We all know it. But this is surely an allusion to the great battle that's been going on for ages and millennia, the great battle with Satan, the, the, the enemy of God himself. And, and even on this day, that battle will be ended. But how will God put an end to it? Not with trumpets and clay pots. But to us a child is born. Just as Gideon defeated the Midianites with a pared-down army and delivered Israel from oppression, so also will God defeat the kingdom of darkness with a pared-down army. To us a child is born. The dawning light of the gospel breaks in unlikely ways. It, it just does. And this is something that the Christian world offers to the world around us as a means of truth. David Brooks, some of you know of, is a columnist for the New York Times. He writes in very thoughtful, intriguing ways about many topics. And he was asked once to speak on the the subject of how to be religious in the public square. And he had some fascinating things to say about this. He, he spoke about certain walls, he called them, that, that the Christian tradition has built up against the world, which are not helpful. <clears throat> but then certain, what he called ramps, or bridges, you might say, that the Christian tradition offers to the public square, the, the secular world, so to speak, which are helpful and, and extensions of truth to the world. One of those ramps or bridges, he said, is inverse logic. Now he explains, he said, secular society works by, by what you might call economic logic, which is the way that we tend to think. Your effort is rewarded with something. Input results in output. Investment results in some profit. That's, that's economic logic, he says. But the gospel is different. Gospel logic is inverse. In other words, you give in order to receive. Your worldly success leads to your greatest spiritual failure. That is, you grow in pride. And vice versa, your worldly failure leads to your greatest spiritual success. That is, you grow in humility. And you must lose this world in order to gain the next. You understand the the inverse logic Of the gospel. And and Brooks says this is one of the great truths that Christianity offers to the world to see. And the greatest enemy of all time, the greatest battle is brought to an end by the smallest child. Why? Why is this? Why is it that God works inversely to the way that we think in the world? It's because the gospel is not your accomplishment. This is what God wanted for Gideon to recognize. This is what he wanted for the people in the time of the judges to recognize. You already have a king. I am your king, and I'll defeat your enemies inversely to the way that you think. Because this is my accomplishment, not yours. The gospel comes not by your accomplishing, but by God's extending grace. The gospel is not yours to win, And it's not yours to lose either. But even the announcement of this child's birth is inverse logic to us. Isaiah tells us, For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Not unto me, not unto you, but unto us together. This child is given to us to be a we not to be a me. You know, for marketing purposes, this world is designed to narrow you in on yourself. You you recognize that, don't you? You have a grocery store club card, I bet, probably like I do, which tracks your purchases. It knows what you bought. And the next time you come to the grocery store, it offers you coupons based on what you bought before in order to just give you what you like. I don't know much about these things, but I understand from others that Google and other such search engines track what you search. And when you type in a word to search for something, it'll offer you things in accordance with what you've searched for before and the kind of things that you've looked at. And someone else might type in the same word and get a completely different list of references based on who they are because Google knows who you are. And it narrows you in on yourself. It gives you your preferences But the gospel doesn't give you your preferences. This is the inverse logic of the gospel. It comes not to you. It comes to us together and draws us in not to ourselves, but to Jesus. The light of the gospel is breaking in unlikely ways. And it also is meeting unfulfilled needs. The gospel addresses all kinds of needs. You you know it. The, The list of needs that the gospel addresses is so long and varied, and and it depends on who you are as to how the gospel reaches you and addresses you and changes you. All of us are different in those ways, and God knows them all. But the pressing need in Isaiah's day, and indeed the need that is assumed by and supersedes all of our other needs, is this. We need a leader. We need someone who will take us where we need to go. After all, the the scriptures give us that, that preeminent metaphor of sheep following a shepherd. And that's what the gospel is. That's who Jesus is as our shepherd. We need a leader. And this child to be born would carry the government upon his shoulder, Isaiah tells us. The government will be his. He will lead the government forever. Now, of course, Yahweh had always led his people. You know, again, the the Bible is all one story. God had always led His people throughout the Old Testament in progressively more and more specific ways, even. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then eventually Moses leading the people out out of Egypt, out of bondage, and to the promised land, and Joshua leading them into the land and beginning to develop a society together. And then the judges and the kings... God progressively, in more specific ways, always led His people, but none of those leaders, both men and women at different times, were sufficient. Only God Himself could truly be what Scripture shows us is a servant leader. He is a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is who this governor is is. Now, to go back to Matthew, I don't know how much Matthew intended in his parallel account in Matthew 4 to portray these particular elements of who this leader would be, but if he didn't, he did it unwittingly. If you go back to Matthew 4 and look, Jesus is to be the wonderful counselor. So what happens when Jesus goes north and he walks by the Sea of Galilee and he sees some men fishing? At the lake. He calls these two brothers to himself, and what do they do? Now I don't know all the Matthew doesn't give us all the details of the interaction. But it's kind of strange because Jesus didn't know these guys. They didn't have history together, I suppose. And he calls these men to come and follow him, and what do they do? They followed him. I mean, if I went out to Lake Ray Hubbard and called to a couple of guys on the ski boat and said, Hey, come and follow me. They would just ignore me and turn around and go off and go skiing. Of course they would. But that's not what happens. Why? Because he's the wonderful counselor. He's the one who has wisdom to which all respond when called. He's the wonderful counselor, Matthew shows us. He's also the mighty God. Matthew shows us that Jesus went through Galilee, not only teaching and proclaiming the gospel, but also healing healing the sick, the afflicted, the epileptic, those who were possessed by demons, people who in that world were cast off and had no hope. And he walks through the, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, Syria, even healing these whom only God, the mighty one, could heal. He's the everlasting father as well. Jesus comes upon two more men, brothers, brothers, who are fishing as well, and he calls them. James and John are their names. You know them. He calls them to come and follow him as well as he had these other two. And Matthew is careful there to tell us that their earthly father, Zebedee, was there in the boat with them. And they left their earthly father in order to go and follow the heavenly father through the Son. And so Jesus is the everlasting father. You know, earthly fathers... Go away, they eventually die, or even just the simple fact of their relationship changing with their sons. Earthly fathers fail. Sometimes, earthly fathers even beat their sons in fantasy football. (laughs) I'll spare you most of that story, but some of you fathers know, and sons know, sometimes that happens. Earthly fathers don't always do for you all that you need for them. To do, You know, but I pray for my kids frequently. When we put them to bed at night, I'll pray for them that God would help them more and more to understand and to see and to believe. That while I have the privilege of being their earthly father, he's their heavenly father. And as they grow older and older, their relationship with me changes. And even when they're grown men and women, they'll still need a father. They'll need for me to be their father, but more and more I won't be able to fulfill that role. Jesus is the everlasting father. He's also the prince of peace, of course. And Matthew shows us this clearly, doesn't he? He goes into Syria, the nation which in Isaiah's day was the plague on the land, the hated enemies. And he goes into Syria and his fame spreads throughout Syria. Why? Because he's healing the sick. And he's bringing the light of dawn upon this land that was an enemy. He's a servant leader. And Matthew, when one last little wording to show us the parallel, says this, And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. That's exactly what Isaiah had said. It's exactly what Isaiah said. From beyond the Jordan, the light will shine. And now from beyond the Jordan, people are following the light because he's a servant leader. You know, why is it in in our world, in our political world, that the midterm elections are always, almost always bad for the party in in the White House? For the past hundred and plus years since the Civil War, almost always... The midterm elections go poorly for the party that holds the White House. Why? Because we put someone in office and within two years we're thinking, why did we do that? I mean, oh, it doesn't matter what party you are, but we're always dissatisfied with our leaders. Ahaz was king in Isaiah's day and he, along with others, had completely abdicated the throne. They had spoiled The throne. They had defiled the throne of God in Jerusalem and disappointed the people, led them astray, and now God promises to establish and uphold justice and righteousness from this throne forevermore. A promise that has come true in the person of Jesus in the flesh and still is coming true in the person of Jesus in the church. A light has dawned. Isaiah promises us a light will dawn. In fact, Isaiah speaks of it in the past tense. A light has dawned. The people have seen it. They've perceived it. It is a fact, he says. A light has dawned. We live in a certain moment in history, but all moments of history have this in common. God is bringing redemption. God is bringing redemption. We're not always sure of it though we know it's true. Isaiah predicted it in the urgency of his day, and Matthew wrote of it as it came in the flesh, and we still see it, shining on unexpected places, breaking in unlikely ways, and always, always meeting our unfulfilled need in this world For a servant leader that only Jesus can provide. By God's grace, may you walk in the light that he has given in this dawn. Oh Lord, we pray that you would give us again eyes to see. Would you grant that we might have faith and that we might believe. And recognize that even in the ways that we forget about this dawning light. That you still are bringing it to bear. Would you do that for us, even as we enjoy the Advent season and all the good gifts that come with it? Would you turn our eyes, Lord, upon the light that only Jesus can provide? We pray you would do that in His name. Amen.